You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I wanted to let you know about the 2015 Net Awards. Uh, The Net Awards celebrate the best and the brightest that are on the web. This is their 16th year. And now they've got a new category, Podcast of the Year. So head on over to the netawards.com and nominate Revision Path for the Podcast of the Year category. I'll also put a link to it in the show notes as well. Revision Path is sponsored by three amazing companies, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. MailChimp just announced a new feature called MailChimp Sync, which lets you sync to Eventbrite, so that's great for anybody that's planning an online ticketed event. I'm already using it with a few of my clients, it works great. Sign up today for a free account at MailChimp.com. Do you need a new domain for your next project? You should check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. I'm looking at getting a new domain because I'm thinking about rebranding my business. And what I really like about Hover's domain search is not only will they search for .com or .net or all that stuff, but they'll also take your domain and look for uh, less common country codes and top-level domains and things like that so you can have a really unique domain, and it's, it's pretty cool. Grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code SECONDYEAR and save 10% off your purchase. Creative Market sells graphics, fonts, themes, photos, and a whole lot more starting at only $2. They give away a selection of free goods every Monday, different themes and icon sets and things like that, and they've also got great bundle promotions every month. Today's Monday, so head over to creativemarket.com and check out those free goods. Now let's get on with the show. This week I talked with Monet Spells, a UX designer and Georgia Tech graduate student here in Atlanta, Georgia. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Monet Spells. I am a UX designer and student at Georgia Tech studying human-computer interaction. How did you first get involved with UX? So I went to school right outside of Boston at Wellesley College and majored in computer science. And when I graduated, went to work at a startup called Paperless Post. Uh, it sends online stationery and invitations. And I was a product manager there. And because we were a really small company, like 20 people, it was a all hands in the cookie jar type situation. And so in addition to doing product management, was also doing some support and some QA and also a lot of user experience, right? Because the people who were thinking about the feature and how it should be were also planning how the user should experience it. Mm-hmm. And so as we got bigger and actually flushed out a real UX team, I realized that they were doing everything I wanted to be doing. So I decided to come back to school and to be a UX designer. How was your experience at, at Wellesley? Oh, it was amazing. I decided to go to Wellesley. I basically, when I was in high school, I applied to a bunch of schools and visited Wellesley. And that was the first time that I felt at home in a way. It's an all-women's college in Wellesley, Massachusetts. And everyone I met there was brilliant. They were funny. They knew what they wanted in life. They were go-getters. And I knew I had to 
had to be around them in that environment. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to go. And I think that, you know, another thing that I now realized was really important was that, you know, majoring in computer science at an all-women's school means that everyone around you is a woman who is in computer science. And so <laughs> when I graduated, you know, it's like the leaders are women, the top of the class, women, your tutors, women. And so when I graduated and people were like, there aren't women in tech, I was like, that's pretty false. Cause I just graduated with a whole bunch of them right. and, you know, really framed the way that I think about myself in this space. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I was just thinking how the discussions around diversity and technology, particularly as it relates to gender, it's always about making sure that women are at the table, keeping more women in the industry. And like you said, you're at Wellesley and everyone there is a woman. Mm -hmm. Do tech companies really recruit there a lot? I mean, I figure because it's so close to Boston, I'm thinking maybe MIT or something like that. When when companies are looking for people and they're doing recruiting at colleges, did a lot of them come to Wellesley? Somewhat. So Wellesley was a small school within itself. So each graduating class is like about 500, 600 people. And so when companies would come recruit, because the computer science major was relatively small compared to other ones, tech companies would come, not as much as investment banking firms or nonprofits or, you know, law schools that would come in and advertise to students. But I know a lot of people who went on to work at Google and Apple and have really great internships and opportunities that they got while they were at Wellesley. Okay. I'm thinking also because, you know, here in Atlanta, there's Spelman College, which is also an all-women's school. Mm -hmm. And I know they have like a really robotics program, but I don't know how many companies are recruiting at Spelman in terms of trying to find people. I know there are people that have graduated from Spelman that like work at Apple, like you say, work at these big, big tech companies like that. Yeah. So you graduated from Wellesley, you moved to New York, started working for for paperless posts. What was that experience? Like you said, it was a a small group. Yeah. So I was writing a column for a paper back at home called the Washington Informer uh, based out of D.C., And basically, I pitched to them that they should have a tech column because they had, you know, lifestyle and they had fashion columns and all these things, but they didn't have anything about tech. And they were resistant because their readership is a little older and not tech savvy. And so I would write these columns that would be like, hey, this is Twitter. You write things to people. And you can. (laughs) it's awesome for these reasons. Very, Mm -hmm. very basic. And so I wrote one about paperless posts. And they were still a pretty new company back then, but, you know, could tell that it was beautiful and well done. And, you know, the whole keeping correspondence elegant and convenient was very obvious. So after I wrote the column on them, I sent an email and was like, hey, you guys are awesome. I'm pretty awesome. Can we work together? And after that, just started working as an intern, which concerned my mother because graduating from college with an internship is a risky move. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so I started out as a developer for the summer and then spent the rest of the summer doing project management, which led to product management, which led to like a really great experience working very closely to code with developers, but also being able to look at the roadmap and high level features and like think about the product from more than just a code perspective, which really Mm -hmm. expanded the way that I think about product and how much I love product. And it's a really complicated area that requires a lot of brilliant minds to come together and build something. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was great. <laughs> so that's interesting. It's, it's, you wrote that article and then it was sort of like a step up from there. They you got their attention. They brought you in. 
And that's kind of where you cut your teeth on learning about UX and, and everything. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So coming from a computer science background into that, did it feel like it was a, a big transition in any sort of way? Yes and no. It felt natural. The company was growing. And so I worked half the summer as a developer and then half the summer as a project manager. And they said, well, whichever one of those fits you best, we'll go with. And so as a developer, I was like, oh, okay, this is great. Like, you know, developing at work is a lot different than coding for a project or a problem set in school. Right, right. (laughs) So that was a learning curve. But then I got to project management and I was like, oh, I get it. Like, it's all just broken down just as logically as it is for a program. Like, things need to happen and these are the resources we have and these are the goals we want to achieve. This is the most viable product that we can put out. These are the bugs and iterations that we need to work on. And it was just a game of fitting things where they belong. And then product management is similar to that, except you're also thinking about the business metrics and, you know, conversion rates and bounce rates, and and you're adding that into the equation. And so it was a lot of, a ton of learning going on, but never felt like an uncomfortable learning game. Right, right. So you worked at Paperless Post, and then from there, that's when you decided you would go back to school. Yeah. And you came down here to Atlanta. Are you originally from Atlanta? I'm not. I'm not from Atlanta. I spent a lot of time here. I have family here. My partner lives here. But, you know, have not really spent more than, like, weekends here and there. (laughs) Okay. So tell me what you're studying at Georgia Tech. So I'm studying human-computer interaction. It's the way that people interact with technology and how we can make that better and easier and faster and simpler. How long have you been here so far? Six months. Okay. So, oh, yeah. You just you just moved this here. Okay. This is very new. <laughs> <laughs> is it a big kind of? I would imagine it's a big change because New York is so busy, 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 and Atlanta is not in that way. Um, <laughs> no, absolutely. So I have to be honest. I had very low expectations of Atlanta. Uh-huh. My plan was to get here, go to school, and leave. I thought that it would uh-huh. be, you know too small a city that it would be more like a suburb and then yeah so these are all the things I thought when I got here and it has exceeded every single expectation I've had and I dare I say I love Atlanta (laughs) really after just six months yeah so when I got here so you didn't come during the summer did you you came like in the fall Well, no I got here August 1st Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So you got you got a little of that of the heat then. So I got a okay. little of the heat. Um, <laughs> but so I will say the heat here is better than New York in that you are not outside as much as you are in New York, right? So you're walking everywhere. So it's not abnormal to walk ten blocks somewhere and then get on a hot train and then walk ten blocks somewhere else in New York. Here, yeah. you're only ever going from an air conditioned room to a car to another air conditioned room. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Yeah. And so it's it's bearable. <laughs> but yeah, so I got here and, you know, really wanted to hit the ground running, uh, whatever that meant. And so because I was starting a new career path in a new city and a new school program, I wanted to get to know what this professional environment was. And so I attended just about every meetup, group, conference. Um, I signed up for more things I've ever had in my entire life. And it paid off. And one of the things that I noticed was, you know, you attend a few events, a few UX events, and you start to see familiar faces. 
and people are genuine about connecting and wanting to know what you do and they're interested. And the startup space here is, you know, young and growing. And I think it's in a really good place. And, you know, Atlanta seems like a really good place to start a career as a UXer or anything in the tech industry because it's small enough that, you know, your talent goes noticed, but big enough that you can still move around and there's a lot of opportunities happening. Versus in New York where it's a huge market and there are tons of talented people and, you know, your competition, even for networking, not even, you know, for getting jobs or anything, your competition is billions and billions of people. (laughs) And it's a lot harder to, to situate yourself in a New York environment versus an Atlanta environment. Now, when I think about Georgia Tech, and I might be alone in thinking this, but I don't really think the web, I know that they do a lot of of tech things and they do a lot in the startup space and the entrepreneurial space. Tell me, I guess, about what Georgia Tech can offer to maybe, like you say, a UX designer or someone that wants to get more into the web. Yeah, so the HCI program has four distinct majors or tracks. So there's the interactive computing, which is where I am, which is the web, mobile, but also a lot of wearables, right? So Google Glass or how can we build technologies that live on us, like a Fitbit or a Jawbone. And then there's the psychology component. How do people feel and perceive things? Um, How can we build technology that play to what people understand about themselves and the environment they live in? There's the digital media track, which is a lot of the um, visual parts of the experience and how can we think about the social implications of the technologies that we're building. Uh, and the last one is interactive design, which is the physical product. How big should an iPhone be to fit in my hand and a two-year-old's hand and a grandmother's hand and in ways that are easy to use for all of us? And so it's a very interdisciplinary track. And so you're always dibbling and dabbling to build as many skills as possible. And, you know, I think that there are a ton of people at Georgia Tech doing robotics and, you know, how can we increase the human computer or human robotics interaction period. But there is a ton of mobile development, web-based development happening for UX designers at Georgia Tech. You mentioned wearables earlier. What's kind of your opinion on that from a UX perspective? (laughs) Have you done a lot of, of work with them? I haven't done a lot of work with them. I have some opinion. <laughs> um, okay. So, so, so my, my big thing that I would really like to do is I think that integrating technology into our lives is really important and is going to be important as we get you know, more advanced. But I do want to preserve the important people-to-people interactions that we should be having. And I think that there are these like major shifts in computing. And so, you know, the first major shift was, oh, it works. Like I can build a calculator, I can build a computer and it will do the things that I ask it to do. And we can really build it and robust it, make it robust. And then I think the next major shift was like, oh, we can make all these cool things. And so that's, I believe where we are now. And so we have an iPhone and you have, you know, you can listen to your music on this device and you can watch your movies on this device. But then if you want to use a larger device on the go, you have an iPad, which is completely different than anything else. And we have a ton of apps that do very small things in your life. And so I, I believe the next major shift is starting to consolidate some of these technologies and some of these apps that we're using so that it just gets simpler, you know? And so instead of having to download five different apps to listen to your music in five different ways, why not just one, you know? (laughs) Um, Why not just one device? So 
that is my general feeling on technology. Wearables, I think there's some really interesting things happening with wearables. There are a ton of people on Georgia Tech's campus that listen that wear Google Glass around. And I think that even though they're not developing Google Glass for personal use or like as a product anymore, I do think that that is an interesting space. I have been dabbling around with some projects with uh, the new Microsoft wearable that came out, HoloLens. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. And so I think that that's also a very interesting space. Uh, if it's defined really well, right? Like I think that having technology on you for the sake of having it is not as useful as knowing exactly why and, and, you know, the value proposition being apparent. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I guess the tipping point has really come with, with some wearables to the point where it has that really big consumer saturation, Mm -hmm. like with, with bracelets, I think that's the case, Mm -hmm. like with Fitbit or the Nike plus band or something like that. The watches, I think, are kind of where it's starting to go now because I see a lot of those. What's the big watch? The Moto X, I think that's the one. Yeah. Starting to see a lot of those. Like, I'm not a big watch person. It's weird because I I tell people, like, if I had a wearable like that, I would want it to look sort of like a pocket watch. But then I don't really see how that's too different from just having a phone because it's something that you've got in your pocket. I mean, it's smaller, but it's. It's different because the wearable itself is just sort of an intermediary between you and another device in a way. Absolutely. So you just spoke at NASDAQ's Pro Design Conference. Tell me about what that experience was like. So I'll tell you about the, how the opportunity came about. So when I first got to Atlanta, I attended an impromptu meetup that Chris Avore, who is the lead of the product team at NASDAQ, was attending. Uh, he happened to be in town. He had some friends including Moses of Nine Labs, who put it together. And we basically decided, let's just go. So I went, showed up, didn't know anyone, and ended up having a really interesting conversation with Chris about the intersections of product design and user experience and where one line starts and one begins and who should own you know, design and who should own the decision-making process and who actually owns the user experience in this product development process. Mm-hmm. And so great conversation We exchanged Twitter handles and all of those things. And a few weeks later, he sent me a message and was like, hey, can I run an idea by you? We're putting together a conference called Pro Design. I think that you would have some really interesting things to contribute and say. And so I said, absolutely, sign me up. And then I promptly thought, what the heck am I going to talk about? (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was my first conference, presenting. And so when I thought, you know, really critically about my experience and the things that I knew that I could contribute and talk passionately about, I thought about, you know, who owns design and the product development process and, you know, basically how there are some teams that could be structured to think about users or design. And so in my experience, and I use paperless post as a backdrop, but in that experience, there were teams, let's say the development team or the, the QA team or even the, the customer support team that thought about the user first and thought about what users would understand and what users should experience when they're going through the product. And then there were other teams like marketing or the business team who would think about the design and the brand and, and what people should feel and think when they are interacting with this and, and what kind of experience we should uphold for them. Mm-hmm. And then you had you know, us product managers who were really trying to balance both, right? We would say, okay, all right, QA, this is really important that the user experiences this excellent 
interaction through and through, but we have to make it pretty too. Like, let's make sure that we're thinking about design and really thinking about how to establish ourselves at the forefront of people's minds in terms of well-designed interfaces. And basically, we, we move towards a system where, you know, if you put users at the center of design, then dis- establish a design goal and a design vision, a design standard, then everyone who is thinking about users is also thinking about design. And everyone who is thinking about design is therefore thinking about users. And so by merging those two, and instead of saying, this is a good user experience, oh yeah, and this is a beautiful design, saying, you know, user experience is design and design is user experience. And so how can we empower everyone to, you know, play a role in that process? Yeah. And so that is what I talked about. And I think it was a well-received talk. So, Let's say that there are people that are out here listening, designers, for example, that want to start to learn how they can introduce UX principles into into their design process. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if they probably are already doing it and just not knowing that it is UX, yeah. like thinking about the different states and the interactions and, and things like that. But what are some ways that they can get started with kind of learning how to better integrate that into their process? Yeah. First of all, it is absolutely possible that people are employing UX principles and don't know it. I think that that's how a lot of people I've met with solid UX professional experience came into it. Like, oh, I was doing this thing and I was doing it really well. And then they told me it was UX. And I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> <That's crazy." laughs> um, and so, you know, I think that ask users what they think, just put it in front of someone, usability test, you know, ask to run a feature by them, get in touch with who your users are. And, you know, I think that when you start talking to your users and stop thinking of yourself as a user or yourself as like the driver of everything this product should be, then you will be user driven and and you will be employing some of these UX concepts. You might not have the technical terms. You might not have like all of the heuristics under your belt and know exactly how to throw them around. But, you know, when you talk to someone and they tell you that something that you thought was so wonderfully executed and is so intuitive doesn't make sense to them, then, you know, you get to a place where you're like, oh, I wonder why it doesn't make sense to you. Oh, right. Because of X, Y, Z decisions we made. And so how can we negotiate, you know, what this a good experience would be in this situation? And think that's a really good way to start. The second good way to start, I think, would be to completely check the ego. I don't think there is an ego involved in user design, right? Like you can create something and you can think it's amazing. And then a user says, I don't get it. And they're right. Like if you build something and it's, you know, absolutely beautiful and you think it really works and no one can use it, then it's not as valuable as something that people could actually use. And so really listen and and don't take it personally. Uh, It's always a work in progress. Everything can be improved several times over. And so take baby steps and and talk to users as much as possible. Yeah. I had an interview a few weeks ago with uh, Gitamba, Sila, and Gita. And one of the things that stuck with me from that interview is when he said that if it can be designed, it can be redesigned. Hmm. And I really like when you said that you have to kind of take your ego out of the process. Because sometimes I believe, you know, as, as designers, if we're creating something and we feel like we've gotten input from the client and we sort of know what we're doing, that extra step of talking to the users can feel like it's derailing the creative process in a way. Yep. Where you're like, oh, well, I thought I was going along this way. And then I talked to users and they said, no, that's not kind of what we want. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think it can be a hard sell 
for clients as well. If I can give an example, there's a, a local client that I work with. I'm not going to name names, but there's a local <laughs> client I work with and I just finished their redesign last year. And part of that was doing like this user testing, like doing surveys, doing screencasts, seeing how they interacted with the site, what they thought should be there, what wasn't there. And had like all this really great, like had a 15 page report full of information to give to the client. Client looked through it and they were like, yeah, these people are wrong. (laughs) Which to me, like the first thing I'm thinking is like, that's the ego talking because they felt like the website should be, I don't want to say for them, but they felt like they knew their company best, better than their users, which I think is a dangerous place to be in. Yeah, I agree. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's kind of interesting how you said you got that first speaking gig really from like this impromptu meetup. Would you say that networking has been really important with kind of advancing your career? Absolutely. Networking is extremely important in my life. And this whole like ad hoc, I talked to this person and then this opportunity came has really been a staple in my life. My decision to apply to Wellesley, I got a random scholarship to waive the application fees to a bunch of schools. And so I just submitted a bunch of applications, happened to go there for a visit, met up with a family friend who went to Wellesley, had a great time. You know, it's like it's all seems haphazard as it happens, but all makes sense. Even paperless posts, like sending a random email in the dark. They didn't have an HR person at the time, so I just sent it to the founder. Um, <laughs> that's the thing. Oh, wow. Um, and, and, you know, I didn't hear back for a few weeks and then... She said, hey, I saw this in my inbox. Why don't you come in? And I happened to be going to New York that weekend. And so we talked. You know, it's just I think that the opportunities that come when you're being your genuine self and you are networking and you are you know, at an event that you want to be at and you happen to meet people who also want to be there uh, has really paid off and been a great experience for me. What keeps you motivated and inspired? So many things. I want to change a lot of things. I want to make a lot of things better. I want to, you know, show people that they can do anything they want. And I see myself as like, the world is bigger than just me, right? And there are things that I can do to make wide changes. And I think user experience is a good way to start to shape the way that people think about themselves and their environment and, and, you know, really to change the world. And so... That means that I got a lot of work to do, and so I don't really have time to be that motivated. (laughs) (laughs) So with those kind of big lofty goals, is one of those things maybe starting up an event or a meetup of some sort? Yes. I have this idea, and I'm still kind of fleshing it out, but I think that there are huge opportunities, and there are tons of people already trying to pick at this problem. You know, women and minorities not being represented at the same levels as other populations in the tech industry, right? And so that's an overarching, a lot of things that I do play into, like decreasing this divide in little ways. I, you know, attended all of college, all the people around me looked like me and were majoring in computer science. And even I grew up in Prince George's County, PG County for anyone who knows that area. And it's a predominantly African-American middle class, upper middle class community. And, you know, even when I was taking computer science classes there, everyone in the classroom looked like me. And so you get into the real world and you see the dynamics and you see this population. You're like, what happened to all of those people that I was studying with and learning with and growing with academically? Where are they now? And, and 
you know, the reality is that that was a very small population and then they're dispersed. (laughs) So really wanting to, you know, introduce more people or even give them the opportunity to know about anything in the tech industry. And I think that includes things like website design and not even from a coding perspective, right? Be a UX designer, be a product manager, like anything in this tech space. There's so many opportunities if you know about them. And so I guess this conference or this meetup would be something that kind of brings those people together in some type of way. Yes. Is that kind of a good way to put it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. From a UX perspective, what do you feel is probably one of the key factors that affects web design today? Well, let me, let me give a little context for that. So with design, there seems to be all these different types of styles that come in and out. Mm-hmm. Like right now, I feel like the flat slash material <laughs> design is something that's really big. Before that, there was a lot of uh, skewomorphism where you try to make uh, interfaces and objects kind of look like real world objects, things like that. Mm-hmm. I think that user experience design is often paired with user interface design. Okay. And I think that sometimes one informs the other. And so wanting it to look flat and sleek and to look the way that a lot of sites do now, right, where you show up and there's a huge, beautiful high-res image and, you know, a white background and light gray text and no shadows and, like you said, all of the these style decisions, I think can guide user experience because it's user interface and sometimes people group those two together. But I don't think they're the same thing. I think that you can have beautiful sites that are completely unusable. Yeah, you could also I had have a lot of had a lot of those in the like '90s, early 2000s. Exactly right, and so it's like, but it's gorgeous, and you're like, yeah, that's fine, but you really just need to make it functional now. And so, yeah. you know, addressing those as two different things, like how do we make this at at its core in you know pencil sketches and whiteboards and in ugly balsamic? How do we make <laughs> this? How do we make this work? And then you could make it beautiful later. And I think that. You know, some design trends inform user experience design in a way that, you know, might not be sustainable. You mentioned balsamic. Are there are there other tools? I like balsamic. I know it's ugly, but it does the job. But I like- are there are, <laughs> are there any tools in particular that you use? Yeah, I agree with you. I love balsamic. I like it because you can't get caught up on pixels. I've earlier in my career would start with Illustrator, right? Because you can do similar things, make boxes and shapes and things. But I would get so caught up on this box is not perfectly aligned with this box and it's driving me crazy. And then you spend like an hour and a half working on shadows and and making certain vectors that you haven't actually done anything. So I like that balsamic kind of strips away all of the frills and makes you focus on what is important at hand. And then from there using that and like continuing to refer to it. So love balsamic. I am getting better at Axure to make some interactive prototypes. I love Illustrator still trying to figure out Photoshop. It's been a lot of years and I think I just got to give it up at this point. (laughs) I am also really into, there's a few online tools for prototyping that I like to use and wish I had more opportunities to use them. Like Envision, I really like. There's one called Proteo. I've never said it out loud and now I don't know how to pronounce it. (laughs) Yeah, Proteo. Let's go with that. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of really good tools out there because there is a need, right, to be able to prototype something really, really quickly, get it in front of users or get it in front of a client and get feedback on it and continue to iterate in this whole like lean startup mentality. Mm-hmm. 
I know with clients, it's sometimes the challenge of making sure that you're educating them on what you're showing them. Yeah. Because usually like when I'm talking to clients, I tell them we're going to work out wireframes. I tell them this is just going to be the layout. It's super simple. It's not going to have like your logos and your graphics and everything. And then you present them with this document that's got these like boxes with X's in it. And it's very black and white, very stark. And they're like, this is not the design that I'm looking for. It's like, no, 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 no. I try to liken it to an architect with blueprints, right? Yeah. Like this is sort of we're sketching out what it's going to look like before we start building anything. Because if we start building something, then we have to like add an extra room or we have to put a bathtub in somewhere. You know, yeah. it's going to take more time, cost you more money, blah, 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 that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think the the I like your analogy. I think the one difference, though, is that people understand that architects start with pieces of paper that don't look finished, right? Like right. this piece of paper is going to have the dimensions of your room and the windows and the lighting, but it will not have that you want a blue bedroom. We're not there yet. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes as people in this UX design product space, because what we do is so closely associated to a final product that can be beautiful, it's hard for people to step back and be like, wait, why are you on a whiteboard? Like, why don't you just go straight into, you know, your text editor and code up something for me so I can see it and, and right. you know, trying to get to a place where users or clients or whomever understands that we also start with pen and paper and we also move to tools like Balsamic and we show planning materials that show you the step-by-step process and it won't look pretty necessarily until the end. And Lorem Ipsum <laughs> is your friend, you know? <laughs> and there are some people that do that. They go right into like building a prototype right in the browser, which I've tried that. And to me, it just feels so, it just feels like I'm stepping too far ahead. You know, like I'm not really getting enough input to really know what I'm doing. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that outlining is important in any field, right? Like every time you try to write a paper, if you just jump right in, what's going to happen is you'll probably be focused on like phrasing this sentence exactly the way you want it to. So now you have an amazing intro sentence, but no real direction on where you're going right. or, or how it's going to flow together. And so I think I'm always a big proponent of planning out things. <laughs> Did you have any mentors that really kind of helped you out along the way? I will tell you about them now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was at Paperless Post, there were two people in particular that helped at different stages. There are a lot of people who I learned a lot from at Paperless Post. And so the first was like the chief operations officer, and she was leading all of the product managers in the beginning. And, you know, I really respect it still respect the way that she thinks about a product as all of the pieces coming together and had like really taught me how to apply insight and, and the expertise that you have at a place to every situation. And so there is no real such thing as like this feature existing in an isolated manner because it has so many implications for the product as a whole, what happens before, what happens next, and how do these things work together? And so, you know, she really helped me and challenged me to think about the product as a living thing that has a lot of pieces that need to come together. And then later in my career, still at Paperless Post, the VP of product. So after a while, product managers, instead of being under the chief operations officer, were under the VP of product and a lot closer to the user experience and, and the design of the site. And she really taught me to think about a product in terms, like think about the 
end goal and what it looks like in five years and then work backwards to get to there, which I'm like still blown away at how her brain could process, you know, (laughs) what it would look like in five years and what it looks like now and not be constantly irked that we're not far enough, you know? And so, you know, really understanding that everything is a process and it's okay to change plans. If you know what the end goal looks like, there are several ways to get there and being flexible and trying things out and, and always thinking about users and understanding what they want and, and interpreting their words into action items and, and you know, improvements that we could actually make. Now, you mentioned earlier that the Pro Design Conference is kind of your first speaking gig. Yeah. Is there anywhere else that you would love to to speak at, any conferences in particular? Oh, God. Yes. I have a ton of goals. (laughs) (laughs) So on a local level, so I actually just went to a Creative Mornings talk this morning. It's a monthly breakfast series nationally. And so they get a bunch of creative minds together and talk about a topic. And so all over the world in February, for example, different cities were talking about climate. There's been other topics like failure or color, minimalism. There are a bunch of different things, uh, which give people some space to play around with what speakers they invite. And it's always just a really good time. Speakers they pick are amazing. The the people who come are interested and engaged. And it's from like 8.30 in the morning to 9.30. So it's just a quick time to get a boost of motivation and, and ideas for things. And so... I would love to speak at a creative morning. They happen in, I think they have 39 cities now. It might be more, but they're great. I would highly recommend anyone go. Hopefully one day I'll be speaking there. I would love to give a TED talk one day. Um, I attended TEDx last year, which is a smaller version of TED in Atlanta. And it was fun. The topics were random, but they made sense to me. And I just love the idea that you can get a bunch of people with different backgrounds in a single room and talk to them and it could all make sense. Even if you're teaching them about, you know, how to build technologies for assist dogs all the way down to how beatboxing is created, you know? (laughs) Uh, So yeah, those are two at the top of my list. And then there's a ton of local events in Atlanta, a lot of UX events and, and meetups and startups and things like that, that I would love to get involved in and continue to speak at. If you weren't doing this work that you're doing now with UX, what do you think you'd be working on? What would you want to do, I should say? Once upon a time, I was going to go to law school and be a lawyer. Okay. <laughs> and, and I think that that still goes back to taking a big problem and breaking it down into smaller pieces and executing each and every one of them. I am a natural process improver. So Anything in my life that is happening that is inefficient, I want to make it better. It could be anything from, I wonder why this grocery line is taking so long. Oh, it's because this guy is in the 12 item lane and he's got, you know, a basket and a half of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'd be definitely doing something with process improvement and improving things. But I don't know what that would look like. I think that's what it feels like to be so wrapped up and in love with the work that you do that I could kind of imagine what type of things I was doing if I wasn't doing UX, but I couldn't, I can't really go that deep into it because I don't think there is anything else for me. What are you excited about right now at the moment? So on a very local, immediate level, I am going to be a, on the most local level, I am excited about being a subject matter expert at a hackathon tonight and tomorrow. It is the Goody Hack 
Oh, I've I heard of Goody Hatch. Yeah, yeah. so I'm, I'm actually really excited to be this uh, SME and, and help people develop an idea in 24 hours. That idea has been the idea of that is crazy to me. Um, and I've never been to a hackathon before. I've seen some like pitches at the very end of a hackathon, but I really want to be involved in the process and, and contribute what I know on a very short-term basis to get something done. And the bigger scheme of things, I am excited for, I'm excited to finish this program and see what comes of it. I'm excited to contribute to the Atlanta tech scene in some capacity. I think that, you know, there's a lot of opportunity here and there's a lot of people doing great work and being recognized for it. And I'm just really excited to contribute to that in some ways, lots of ways. Now, I was doing my research for this interview and there were two things that kind of stood out to me that I thought were really interesting that I wanted to talk about. So the first thing is that you're kind of a bit of a globetrotter. (laughs) Where all have you visited? So I studied abroad when I was in school, my junior semester, to go to Brazil. And so I spent six months there, one month in Salvador, which is the northern region in the state of Bahia. Uh, And then I was in Sao Paulo, which is central, southern Brazil, for five months. And while I was there, I traveled around a bunch. I went to Rio and to Falls to Iquazu, which is the big waterfall that is on the border of uh, Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil. And then I went to Argentina while I was there. I have been to Spain, France, and Italy. I did all those in one trip. Beautiful places. I have got to go back to Italy. I have got to go back to Italy. (laughs) I have been to a lot of uh, Caribbean islands. St. Thomas, Jamaica, Turks and Caicos. They are all gorgeous. Mexico, Canada, a lot of states in the states. Did you kind of pick up the travel bug from your dad? I did. How do you know my dad? <laughs> I told you I did some research for the for the interview. I saw your dad visited like he's visited like a hundred and fifty countries or something like that. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I absolutely got the, the the travel bug from my dad, and I think that so there's two parts. One, when you travel, you get a travel bug, and so. Uh, at Wellesley, like 70% of the junior population goes abroad. And so it's a thing that you are expected to do in some ways. Okay. And so I picked Brazil. It seemed great. And when I got there, I was like, oh, my, I'm learning so much. I have got to keep doing this. Like, there is no way that I can stop now. And then from that experience, my dad actually came to visit me. And that's when I went to Salvador and Iquazu and uh, Argentina. Nice. And from that experience, I understand him a lot more and we speak the same language now right like cultures and and how important it is to remove yourself from your environment and understand someone else in theirs Mm -hmm. and so he has been to a lot of countries I think he can probably count how many he has not been to a lot easier than he could how many he has I think he has like somewhere like less than 25 countries left to go until he's been to every country in the world he is a very compassionate person. He only speaks English and yet can communicate with anyone. And I do not know (laughs) how he can do that. It's amazing. And, you know, is really trying to share his knowledge, right? And so he is starting a travel with spells, social media thing, just to be able to share his experiences and tell people about traveling because anyone can do it. 
And I think that a lot of people let, you know, there's, I mean, it's, it can be expensive. It can be cheap. It can be intimidating. It can be fun. And so I think he's really trying to tell people that it's accessible and anyone should do it. Now, the second thing that I found through my, through my research, hopefully this won't be another kind of mind blowing thing, but I see that you're a bit of a tea lover. Now we have to talk about tea. I I'm a tea lover as well. I actually have a, a tea podcast where <laughs> every day I, re- I review a different tea. How did you get into that? So a few like subtle ways. I got into tea first through red wine, actually. Okay. Um, and I think that from drinking red, I used to hate red wine. And then after drinking and understanding how amazing these like bitter tastes can be and from there, really got to a place where I was like, huh, I think sugar masks a lot of the, the natural flavors and the things that I love, right? And then I started drinking tea because I'm not much of a coffee drinker. And instead of putting several tablespoons of sugar in my tea, would just see what it tastes like by itself. And it's amazing. Uh, yeah. And so I got, I'm really into black tea. I love Earl Grey. There's something about bergamot that just warms my soul. There's a tea shop you've probably been to called Zen Tea in Atlanta. Uh, it's you in Changley, Dunwoody, it. somewhere yeah. there. Uh-huh. You should absolutely go. They have tea tastings, I think, every weekend. And so I went there for one of those. And she took me on a tour around the world in a cup. And it was, I probably drank <laughs> like a gallon and a half of tea in that sitting alone. And it was amazing. And I found uh, Pu'er tea, which is a really dark black tea that when it's brewed, looks a lot like coffee. It has just about as much caffeine as coffee, right? And it's amazing. It's just the flavors are complex. And and I think that tea is, it's accessible and it's easy and it's delicious. And, you know, it's, it's been part of my process. So in the morning, I drink a glass of any black tea I have on hand. I sift through several of them. And at night as I'm working, I have jasmine tea and just mm-hmm. continue to put more and more water on it. So I probably drink a lot of tea at night, but very into it. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. Where do you kind of see yourself in the next five years or so? Professionally, I see myself doing one of two things, either contributing to a company's user experience. I really like the idea of working at a you know small company that still has a lot of work to do on their product. Or I'm, I'm, I'd be interested in doing some like freelance agency type work. So if I'm not concentrating my efforts on one thing, working on a lot of things. And so either having clients that I can do projects with or even work at an agency and be assigned to a project for a couple months and then going on to another. Low, like geographically, I could see myself in Atlanta. I think it's a great city. The housing market's not bad, you know, for all the logistical reasons, it's good to stay here. Um, but even in terms of the tech industry and the opportunities here, I think that it would be silly for me to move now. All right. Just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find you online? So I own my name.com, monetspells.com. I can be found on Twitter at O-Monet, O-H-M-O-N-E-T. I'm on LinkedIn, same name. Monet spells. <laughs> Excellent. Sounds good. Monet spells. Thank you again so much for 
coming on the show for talking about a lot really just explaining about UX and how that works within the design process, why it's so important, and just sharing more about who you are and the work that you do. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for it was good talking to you. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Monet Spells and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Monet and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it super simple. They have great reporting and autoresponder features. They integrate with a ton of different apps. And you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts, no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover and save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code SECONDYEAR at checkout. And lastly, there is Creative Market, a marketplace that sells beautiful, ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators from around the globe. Head over to creativemarket.com and pick up those six free goods that I talked about. They're available for free every Monday. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro audio by Yellow Speaker. The outro audio, They See Me Growing, is courtesy of Jimmy Square. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. It really, really helps get the word out about the show, helps us get a lot of new listeners, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and show your support. Leave a tip in our tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or join at the $5 fist bump level to show your ongoing support. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.